you would please open your Bibles and turn to Galatians 1. We will be in the first 10 verses of our chapter and book here today. It really is my joy and privilege to be preaching to you. I say it before, I, I get to preach with somewhat frequency at, at City Union Mission where I work, uh, but it's usually to a room of people who are asleep. So if you fall asleep, I'm not going to take it personal. If you, if you decide to leave and head for the elevator, I've had that happen too. All right, this is the letter of Paul to the Galatians, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God concludes the reading of the word. Please pray with me. Father God, we know that you have given your gospel, for you have given your son, and you have given the spirit which lives within each of us who have by faith believed. Help us this morning, God, as we hear the opening letter of Paul to a church that he loved and cared for and ministered to and had given your gospel to that we would be equipped for your teaching to us through this word today. Not my teaching, but your teaching to us. So illumine your word and help us this morning. It is in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I, I feel the weight of this text, as I'm sure many of you already feel the weight of this. For many reasons I feel that weight. First of all, uh, I'm much more of a Hebrew scholar than a Greek scholar. So as we come to you from the New Testament today, I'm excited and it's a privilege to be here, but I'm also aware that ladies' Bible study has been in this recently. And so there are many in this room who are equipped for this and understand this and are going to really have a good lay of the land. But briefly, I want to lay out the big picture of the book because there are visitors here in this room as well as men who many of us are a little more dense than our wives certainly myself, being more dense than my wife. So I want to say and ask of you all, what is the big picture of Galatians? What is it that we are seeing here? I believe that every book asks a question. And so for us, we need to understand that big picture before we would do any justice of getting into the rest of the book, before we would spend any time. Now I would say and argue with you here, the big question today 
is how is a person justified? And with that, we get to our question of what is true gospel clarity? So how is a person justified and what is true gospel clarity? How does a person come to faith? Is it works in faith? Faith alone? Out of an obligation to something that our parents instilled in us? And out of an obligation to our community? An obligation to our church? Now, I would say that the people here in Galatia are struggling with this very question. Now, there's huge, huge speculation in this letter uh, as to when it was written, what it was that they were struggling with, and what was going on. Whether this was before the Jerusalem Council, whether this was after the Jerusalem Council. I'm not going to touch that because there are people who have spent five, six, seven years of their life getting into PhD thesis discussions as to when this was written. How recent it was, basically, the question and answer is, Paul proclaimed this gospel, they believed this gospel, how quickly did they desert it? Well, if it was before the Jerusalem Council, it's probably been two years. If it was after the Jerusalem Council, it's probably in the late 50s that this was written, and this would be 10 years. Somewhere in a very short span, 2 to 10, maybe 15 years at the max, that the people would proclaim the good news of the gospel, they heard the good news of the gospel, and they're now deserting it. Now, I submit to you, the question is not when was this written or some of these things that are secondary, tertiary things, but it's for us to understand and say how much things can shift from the true gospel in a short period of time. How quickly things can go the way of the world rather than the way of our God. I mean, we all remember what was happening 10 years ago, 2011. I can tell you 2011, I firmly remember what was going on in my life at that time. The Lord was working mightily in my life in different ways. Now, if we'd say it's a year or two ago, 2019, 2020, the start of the pandemic, I'm certain that everyone in this room remembers what was going on in their world just a year ago, two years ago. So in the same way that the question for the Galatians, I want to say, what are the things that we as a church, what are the things that we as a people of God, what things might we be forgetting? shifting from, making secondary importance primary. Now, I approached this this way because there was something that came out just about last year, actually. Um, there's the, the State of Theology report that comes out every two years that Lifeway Ministries and Ligonier Ministries basically do together. Lifeway being the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention and Ligonier being a reformed-leaning ministry of the late R.C. Sproul. Now, what concerned me about this most recent State of Theology report was the number of evangelicals. It's a wide-reaching report. Thousands of people, three to 4,000 people respond every couple of years to this report. But some of them identified as evangelical, close to 1,000. And of those, 48%, half, had a faulty view of believing by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. Half. Now, we can be quick and say, okay, well, well, maybe we don't associate ourselves with those people. So I dug a little deeper to find out what was behind this stat. What was it that was shifting away? Who were the people who were shifting? And so here were the most prominent respondents of evangelical denomination, denominational affiliation for this survey. Southern Baptist churches, Bible churches, Christian Reformed Church in North America, Evangelical Free Church, 
Evangelical Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church in America. So the very denomination that we are a part of, the Presbyterian Church of America, is a part of this grouping, a part of people who had a faulty view of the finished work of Jesus and had a faulty and secular view of saying that things are relative. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what God says. But if in our own churches, if in evangelical, if in reformed churches across this land this is going on, we need to ask what happens in our own heart because this happened to these people who the Apostle Paul proclaimed his word to. This has foundational gospel-centered issues that are at stake. This is a heavy word. It's not lost on me. This is a heavy word. But what is at stake is what the gospel is. Now, my purpose and hope in preaching for you today is that you would understand and trust and believe in that gospel hope and follow its teaching all the days of your life more readily. That's my hope for you today, that you would understand and trust and believe what the gospel truly is and follow its teachings all the days of your life. That's my purpose today, my hope for us today. I don't take it lightly, and I don't believe any of you do either. You haven't headed for the elevator yet. There isn't one. But as we look at this, I want us to see that there are three ways that this passage shows for us as a small church, through the church at Galatians, as a church here on an interstate that is becoming particular, hopefully very soon, in Enley Summit, that there are three ways to see and fight for gospel clarity. Now, Galatians moves in three really quick sections. It's only six chapters. If you read the whole letter, which I would encourage each of you to do that, I think it's a great exercise that when you're hearing preaching from God's word that you understand the broader context. So go, go read it as a family. Go read it individually. It's going to take you about 15, 20 minutes max. There's a lot of YouTube videos. Go watch it on time and a half speed, and you can get it done in about 10 or 15 minutes. But go look at the big theme here. Go look at this big movement. We're going to see that there are three sections, though. It's by faith alone, chapters 1 and 2. 3 and 4, we see the picture of covenant and the focus on believers, and then we see these practical implications of what it means at the end of the book and what it is that we are to do. So with this first section of what I've already alluded to in saying, Faith alone in what is what I think we ultimately have to ask. We have faith alone that there is one true gospel. This ultimately leads us to the first way that we see true gospel clarity on display from our passage today is that there is only one true gospel. Look and see in your Bibles this. Go ahead and lower your heads. Now Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, now we're going to start to see what I want to draw to your attention. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now right away, right there, we're beginning to see what it is that he is showing, what it is that he is saying. Now Paul does this, he has an introduction in all of his letters, but this is different than his other letters. This is actually different because in his other letters there's often encouragement, there's often an admonishment that, that helps the people. But here he's stating gospel foundations. He's stating who and what and where the gospel comes from. It is through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's the very thing that we celebrate this time of year at Easter. It's the very thing that we celebrate every week when we gather as a church. Now I state this not because I don't think that you believe this. I state this 
knowing that we are at a church at Christ the Redeemer, who by God's grace and effective weekly preaching under his lordship, he has allowed for a clear gospel to be proclaimed. But we begin to ask ourselves, does this bring full gospel clarity to us today? Are we really seeing what the full true gospel is? It is Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead after living a sinless life, who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and submitted to the Father's plan for salvation for those who by faith believe. He's stating this right out the gates because the Galatians are struggling with this. That there are many things that they are, that there are issues in their lives. So there's issues in the, Galatia, the, the church at Galatia. But what's going on here is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has given this to them. That God has given it through the Apostle Paul to them. And then second, he says that this only comes by God the Father. He says, first, I'm rooted in Christ and the Father, but it comes from God the Father. Now, Paul is affirming here in Galatians that the power of the gospel comes by Jesus Christ, by God the Father, and affirming that Christ was truly raised from the dead. Look, look it, it's right there in front of you. He was raised from the dead. And that the very God, the very Father who sent him, did the work. Now, this struck me recently. Often we skim over introductions. I know I skim over introductions when I read. I probably shouldn't admit that. I love to read, but I skip over the introduction. Many times when I read a book. But there's good ground to be laid in introductions. I, I was thinking about that recently when I, when I started reading introduction. I read the first paragraph and I said, ooh, I understand what's going to come in front of me. And I saw that there were 20 pages and I started to skip it. Well, how much more do we do that here when it's just like nine verses of a six-chapter letter? What is it that we miss? And one of the things we miss, for one, is seeing that Paul slightly words this differently, that he slightly approaches this differently because he has an admonishment of going back to things of first importance, going back to the gospel as being foundational, not to things, not adding things, not being a gospel tamperist, as some theologians, as some commentaries like to call this and call him. But he doubles down and continues to say, this really is only one gospel. There really is only one hope. Now, there are many men who have impacted my life in preaching, eh, Charles Spurgeon being one of them, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Derek Thomas, John Piper, but all of them have something in common, and that they really say one of the big things you need to do when you're preaching is to understand what the main big picture is. All of those men seem to do that. They do it in slightly different ways, and there's different and wonderful ways to unpack something. But they would say the emphatic imperative is that an effective preacher helps the listener to really understand the passage. Not just to tickle your ears, not to give some background information, not to give things that maybe you want to hear, that maybe you hope to hear. And there's stuff that is out there and things that are great for Bible study, things that are great for our Sunday school hour. But when I have such a short amount of time to preach his holy, inspired, and inerrant word to you today, these 10 verses, and the way I diagrammed it, I believe it was 28 or 29 different clauses or statements that we see from this passage, I wanted to get to that which is of first foundational importance, which is this, that there really is only one true gospel. That is the main thrust of our passage. That is the thrust of the Bible. That we are not to be people who add or detract from the gospel. It's rooted in the Father's plan and the work of salvation is finished by Jesus on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Now there's two things that you're going to see to support this continuing on in verses 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5 to see these. Now the two things that you're going to see is that first, Jesus delivered us from our sin in verse 4. Now that may sound basic, but it's really important to see that Jesus delivered us from our sin. But second, you're also going to see that it was according to the will of God. It was not according to human constructs. It was not according to the desires of the culture of Galatia. Not according to the desires even of, of the church. It was according to God. It says it right there. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So it is for God's glory, for his church, for the benefit of his people. Now we can look at the brokenness of history and know intimately that we need a savior. And we can look to our own hearts and know that. And see that and feel that. And from time to time, we get away from foundational things. We get away from the things and we start moving into secondary things and things that are incredibly important, but are things that are not of primary significance. Now, I love the way I just said a minute ago, Charles Spurgeon has hit my preaching, but I love when Charles Spurgeon was asked, what is the one point of theology, the one thing that it is the most important thing that people should know about? And you said, oh, that is easy. And it was four words, and so you said, Jesus died for me. So we start there. We finish there. That Jesus died for me. In between, there's so much. But we're claiming by faith that finished work of Jesus Christ. There's not another gospel. This is the true gospel. Now take a breath. I should take a breath. We're at a church that believes this. And praise God. We should really take comfort and find hope in the finished work of the gospel and the proclamation of it from this pulpit and the proclamation of it in Sunday school hours and the proclamation of it of what he has done in this place. But think about that. For the church at Galatia, how quickly they turned, how quickly they started trusting their own powers. A year or two to ten years. And so for us to think that that couldn't happen when that did happen to a church under Paul that was established by Paul is naive. So we need to rejoice, though, and see his glory and proclaim his one true gospel all the days that we have, all the days that we have as individuals, all the days that we have as a church. And there are days that it's going to be hard, and there are days that we're going to say, man, I just want to move to something else. Well, at that point, we've become a bit of a gospel tamperist. We've become somebody who is saying, okay, let's move to something beyond foundational things. And there is truth that we even see in Paul's letters that, you know, moving beyond things, moving beyond milk to, to deeper things, but that's where we start. And that's where Paul starts, especially to this church that had brokenness. Now, that was the first way that we saw this, but I want to see that there's a second way that he shows us as well. And that the second way that we see that there is something from this passage is that our sin will try and turn us from the true gospel. Yikes. Whoa. Our sin will try to turn us from the true gospel. We see that in verse 6. Continue to look at your Bibles. Now, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different 
gospel. Right there in verse 6, we get to the first thing that I want you to see is in regards to the desertion of the gospel. You are so quickly deserting. And he is astonished to this end. Now, Paul doesn't mince words. He's not light with his words. Even in his lighter, more happy letters, we can say, man, that was heavy. And this is a very heavy one from Paul. But when we think about how quickly that is that they've turned away, we should also find ourselves astonished. As Christians, as people sitting under the teaching of his word, sitting and clinging closely to the word made flesh that came and dwelt among us, we should say, man, that, that, that's, that's terrifying. Now think for a minute. This would be a little bit like if we were to make a crazy trade. And so the thing that came to mind as I was thinking about this, I was talking with my father recently about, about Wall Street and money and, and kind of that realm. And we were talking about Bill Gates' home, actually. And Bill Gates' home is like $130, $140 million valuation for tax purposes. It's on Lake Washington. It's a beautiful home. Went up and looked, looked up pictures. It's close to 100,000 square feet. It's pretty amazing to see this home. It will cost well over $100 million to build, I believe, 20-something years ago. So it's a very, very expensive place. Now imagine for a second if we were to receive that as a gift. All expenses paid, not taxes, nothing that we have to worry about. Because we looked it up and the property taxes on that are around $2 million every year for the property taxes on his home alone. Everything's covered. We're given this house. And we say, you know what? I think I can make this better. It'd be really great if I just went out and bulldozed the whole thing. And what I think I want is I want to put a yurt right here on Lake Washington. Now, that may sound crazy to you, but actually at one point in my life, I thought it'd be really cool to live in a yurt. So if you don't know what a yurt is, go look it up. And you'll be like, man, Billy's stranger than I realized. <laughs> but think about that for a minute. If you were given... A house, all expenses paid, over $100 million, a pretty extravagant gift, incredibly extravagant gift, more extravagant than I've certainly ever received and probably any of us will ever receive in our lifetime here on this earth. And we said, okay, I'm going to build a yurt. We would be astonished. We would actually probably say something similar to what Paul says in, in, in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Billy, you took Bill Gates' gift and, and put up a yurt. Now we can't stop and look at this second cost that the Galatians have paid, though. We see that they've turned from the truth and that they've made a terrible trade. But they've also given something else up here that we see in these verses. They've given up grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. See that in verse 6. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They are giving up the grace that they have been given. How foolish. How sad. Now it goes even further and we see this in the next, next section of the passage. When we look at verses 8 and 9. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 8 and 9 for you again. Now even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now I said something twice. 
Let him be accursed. There's been a lot of time spent on this and a lot of time speaking as to, to what this means. I read a lot of commentators and looked at a lot of things about what this means here. And I went and looked at it in the Greek and struggled my way through for your sake, for my benefit too. But I looked at this and I said, okay, where does this occur and how is it that the Lord has used this? Well, the, there's six times it's used. It's used twice here and it's used four other places in Paul's letters. But every time it's used as a reference of being fully cut off from God. Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 16, and Acts 23. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want you to hear that you are accursed for minor differences, for things that are of secondary significance. It would be, for instance, like if I, as a Presbyterian licentate, proclaimed people were an anathema to God because they were Baptists, because they went to the Baptist seminary that I trained for ministry at, or because they're Anglicans or Lutheran, or more so closer to home because they're in the PCA or because they're in the OPC or because they uh, sing their hymns in a contemporary way or because, like our RPC brothers, sing only psalms a cappella. Now, we may agree that there are certain ways or things that are better and, and things that we believe by looking at the regulative principle of which God has given us for how to worship him that are to be better. But these are not the things that we are to divide over and call down anathemas or to say you are cut off from God about. So God's not saying that here, or Paul's not saying that here as well. We need to be careful not to judge people too loosely, but we also need to not rain down these anathemas. And Matthew Henry said this well, it will not justify us thundering out anathemas against those who differ from us and minor things. It is only against those who forge a new gospel, who overturn the foundations of the word for us here today, is that the gospel is to be taken seriously. And we thus hold out the gospel clearly. Now, I liked it better how somebody else put this, and actually in the same spot, Derek Thomas talked about this. He said, when a person rejects the gospel, the free, gracious gift of God's forgiveness and kingship, they remain under a divine curse for their sin, a terrifying prospect because of its torment and unending length. Now, this is a consistent view that Paul holds out in all of his letters. It's a consistent view that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed that there is a coming Messiah who will fulfill everything. This is the consistent view of what we see through Christ in the New Testament and his red letters, if we will. So we see this consistently everywhere. That is for those who by faith believe in him. Christ came. He lived. He died. For you, for me. He imputed his righteousness to us for those who by faith believe. Now, we can be quick to move past these things. And I would argue that our enemy wants us to move past these things. And we will do so sometime from time to time in small ways and focus on things that are little. But remember places like in Ephesians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the leaders of darkness of this world. We're at war with a very real enemy. Now, Satan really wants us to unwittingly and quietly and happily get into divisions, to get away from the gospel, to look to the entertainments of this world, and look at other gospels, which I hope by now you clearly see there are no other gospels. There's no other true good news. 
Now, I'm sure some in this room are already terrified, and they're very frustrated, and they don't want to hear any more about anathemas and these things being rained down. And I, I would say you should be. I think that that's here for us to feel the weight of this. I certainly felt the weight of this. But some people are just glossing past this and saying, yeah, that's too harsh. I don't like this. And I'm afraid that media or technology or society, our friends, our coworkers, our hobbies, have consumed us with things that really are not about godliness. That have allowed for us to get distracted by the things that are of secondary issue rather than primary. And to hold these things out and start mixing these things and becoming people who tamper with the gospel and what the true gospel is. Now I know this and I feel this because sometimes I can be prone to doctrinally defend truth or some nuanced point of theology that is important rather than with fervor sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with clients and guests who I get to minister to at City Union Mission. Or I can feel this as I start preparing a sermon like this and, and soften this sermon and, and make it more appropriate to, to what it is that I'm proclaiming to you today, but not going too far to filter and get away from what is God's holy inspired word. We all feel this in different places and ways in our lives. So again, would you pause and take stock? Don't brush past this truth. There are places and ways that your heart is going to try to deceive you if you are trusting only in your flesh, if you are only looking to the wisdom and ways of the law that Christ came and fulfilled perfectly. But in mercy, God has given us hope. He's given us joy when we feast and sit on this true and full gospel of Jesus Christ. And by grace, when he applies it to our lives, and by feasting on the word made flesh and the truth of this written word from God, joy will abound. Hope will abound. You'll find yourself walking more consistently close to him and consistently healthy all the days of your life. I've experienced that in my own life. And I think anybody who has walked with the Lord for any season of life, any season of time, when hardship comes, for it does, or when easy things come, for they will, and they will say, feel and sound better that we look to those things rather than the truth of scriptures, rather than to the, the word made flesh, to Christ Jesus. But remember in those places, look in those places to Christ. The gospel. And the, the ways that we're seeing here this morning supporting this true gospel of hope. Now, I'd be real amiss if I didn't take you back to a, a, a third way or a third truth for you today. For I showed you that there is only one true gospel, and I've showed you, again, that our hearts will be deceptive and try to deceive us and take us to places that are other gospels. But we see a third truth. And we see this, that the power for gospel clarity comes from God. Hear that again. The power for gospel clarity comes from God, not from this world. This brings me a lot of joy. And I hope it does each of you. For if I start looking at this and thinking about this and looking to my sin in the places that it's deceptive and creepy, because it comes in, it will. I'm the biggest sinner I know. 
I will be prone to look past the gospel and to forget that Jesus died for me. That I return to that place. For no one can bring a charge against God's elect. We know that from Romans. We know that from all of our scriptures. For if God is for us, who can be against us? But Paul says this here in verse 10. We're going to see a couple of things. Who is it that he's called to please? He's called to please God. We are called to please God. Verse 10, for I am now seeking the approval of men. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? He's called to please God. We are called to please God. We are called to hold out the truth of Scripture, to not make it lighter, to not tickle ears, to not make it a mixture of other things, to not get hung up on secondary things and issues that are distracting the church today. We find hope and rest in that. It's not popular in this world. We all feel that. I certainly feel that. But we are to be servants of Christ Jesus, not of the world. He is who we are to please. Now maybe you're weary, and maybe this sermon's made you even more weary. But we have hope. Hope in the gospel. Hope in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that all of our suffering, that all of our burden, that all of the things that distract us and say, don't you see this? Can't you see how ignorant you are? That God uses the things of this world and he says that those people are foolish. And those who are wise are the ones who cling to him. Again and again and again. Now we are not to twist, to distort, to take this message at any less than its face value, at any less than what it is that God has for us today. Now the second thing that we see here of this calling that comes from God, it's related to this, that pleasing man actually is not going to help us to lead into serving him fruitfully. Pleasing man will not lead to serving God fruitfully. But if we were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, it says here in verse 10. For if we want to do things that are pleasing to the world, things that are pleasing to man, we're not going to be a servant of Christ. Yikes. But fruitfulness sure looks different here in this context. It sure looks different than what we think. And maybe there was stuff going on in Galatia. Maybe the church was growing. Maybe the church was not growing numerically. But they weren't proclaiming truth. They weren't holding out the gospel in its fullness, in its unadulterated form of what Paul said here at the very first couple of verses. That it is Christ Jesus by God the Father who raised him from the dead and delivered us from our sins. That's the hope that we have. He's delivered us from our sins. All right, now let me take a minute. Let me, let me tie this all, get, all together. So what is true gospel clarity? We saw it in three ways. Look at it for a minute. Those three ways is that there's only one true gospel. True gospel clarity holds out the, the fact and the promise 
and hope that there is only one true gospel. And gospel clarity reminds us also that second, our sin will try to turn us away. Our hearts will try to turn us away if we are trusting in ourselves, if we are trusting in our works or our righteousness, not his righteousness. And that often sounds impossible when we're living in a healthy way. But there are also seasons where I think as we get deeper and as we understand him more and we say, oh man, there are ways that I was sinning now that I couldn't even fathom 10 years ago when I was pretty wayward from God. I'm sure there are people in this room who feel that too. But third, and this is the good news and hope, is that the power of the gospel is that he will sustain us, that he will hold us fast. He will keep us until we have shed this earthly body and we see God face to face. For we have a reward that is far greater than what was talked about earlier of a $100 million home. We have the hope of eternity. We have the promise of reality. When we fight against the things of this world, when we fight against our flesh, and we more than that say that Jesus died for me, and then in turn live out our life in a different way. So by way of application, I want you to see that this really pulls us back and reminds us that the gospel has a high view of what God asks in Scripture. So continue to commit yourself to a church Hopefully to this church, I'm excited by what God's doing as we become a particular church, Lord willing, here soon. And I expect and hope that each of you will hold your church, your leaders, to the teachings of scriptures. So by way of application, hold your leaders accountable to his word. But you know what that means if you're holding your leaders accountable to his word? It means by way of application that you are holding yourself accountable to his word. So feast in the word. Spend more time in it. Delight in it. Know it. Come to see these truths. Start this afternoon and listen to Galatians. Read Galatians. Read commentaries on this. Dive deeper. Get involved in Bible studies. But all of that would be doing if you're just doing these things, you've missed it. That you are to trust in the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. By way of application, that is what it is. Trust in his full good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross without sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. So that he would make payment for my sin and for yours. As we trust that gospel, as we believe that gospel and know that gospel, we will fall more in love. We will find more joy in his scriptures. We will find more joy in the word made flesh. And we will find ourselves being accountable and helping each other walk towards eternity. That is the hope that we have for us. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus. Help us when we in our own hearts turn and trust our sins rather than Christ Jesus' finished work. For I repent, 
We are sorry for the places that we struggle to trust, but oh, how we praise you that you have begun the work in our hearts and you will finish this race for us here on earth. For when by faith we believe in Christ Jesus, God, would you help our church as we enter this stage, hopefully as a particularized church, to stay faithful to your word always, to your truth, and to never proclaim another gospel. Transform our hard hearts from stone into living flesh more each day. We ask this for your glory and our benefit. Amen.